I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Steve Call. Steve Call is a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine and a former editor at The Washington Post. He is the winner of not one, but two Pulitzer Prizes and the author of seven books, the most recent of which is Private Empire. He is currently the president of the New America Foundation, a nonpartisan think tank which has been a Sokolo partner since our inception. Please give a very warm welcome to Steve Call. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. A lot of people did not win the raffle to George Clooney's tonight, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, I'll do my best. Uh, Private Empire is a book about the largest corporation headquartered in the United States, ExxonMobil. And it's a corporation that um, in many ways more resembles a sovereignty or a state spread out across the globe than it does an ordinary business. It works in more than 150 countries. Its numbers tell some of the sense of its scale. In last year, its revenues were north of $450 billion, which is more than the size of the annual economic activity in most countries in the world. It's a durable sovereignty. If you go back and look at the Fortune 500 lists from the post-war period 1950 forward, you'll see that Exxon and then ExxonMobil have been in the top five every year, year after year. And venerable companies like U.S. Steel, who were on that list a generation ago, are no longer around. Even last year, when ExxonMobil replaced uh, Walmart in the back and forth for the number one position on the Fortune 500 list, three of the top five uh, companies on that list were oil companies. Chevron and Conoco were among the top five. But Chevron at number three had less than half of ExxonMobil's revenues at number one. So that's just a sense of the scale. But this is not a, a static country. Like any other nation state, it goes through struggles. It is transformed by crises and calamities. It's constantly in motion. And the purpose of this uh, book was to try to describe that struggle, those um, crises, primarily over the last 20 years, and through that to describe ExxonMobil's place in our country and also in the world. And in the time I have uh, before I take your questions, I'll just try to introduce some of the themes and some of the episodes in this, um, in this narrative. And I'll start with a story uh, where the book begins, which uh, begins on March 23, 1989, uh, in the Prince William Sound in Alaska. Have any of you visited the Prince William Sound? Go. It's fantastic. I went for this research. I was just stunned. It's an inland sea. I didn't quite know the United States had a place of such extraordinary uh, beauty and unusually rich with wildlife, uh, whales and school, many um, salmon and halibut, but also uh, sea lions and sea otters and seals and uh, in an incredible setting uh, in southern Alaska. And uh, for some time, it, Valdez, the town of Valdez, has been the port through which North Slope oil is piped, taken by tanker, and then taken to open markets and the open seas. And by March 23, 1989, when the Exxon Valdez departed uh, from that port, 
just after nine o'clock at night, it's, it was very well established as a kind of highway for American oil coming in and out of this, of this sound. Tankers uh, rolled in and out quite regularly, and the Valdez was just one of them, and it was loaded with a little bit more than a million barrels of, of oil that night. Its uh, captain, that some of you will recall, was a man named uh, Joseph Hazelwood, Jr., and uh, he was a longtime Exxon employee, quite a talented man who had graduated from the elite maritime college in New York, uh, once took an IQ, IQ test, if you credit those at all, and scored 138. Uh, he quoted Oscar Wilde and Stonewall Jackson on the bridge of his ship. He was uh, very experienced at this particular passageway. He also said later that he was in the midst of what he thought of as a midlife crisis. He had started to drink heavily. He typically drank four or five doubles before dinner, then wine with dinner, then more after dinner. And he said later that he didn't feel immobilized or disabled, but he recognized that he was um, not drinking an ordinary amount. And he was arrested for uh, driving under the influence once or twice, had his license suspended. Exxon did not at that time, however, discipline him or remove him from the role that he had uh, as a ship's captain. And uh, that night in Valdez, he drank a few vodkas at the Pipeline Club on shore and then boarded the ship through a gateway, Coast Guard gateway, without inspection and uh, came up to the bridge and off he went. Now, it turns out that this channel of uh, oil transport with all these tankers coming and going, enormous vessels, it's organized just like a highway. You drive on the right, 10-mile sea lane outbound, 10-mile uh, lane coming in. And uh, as they got out into the open water that night, they could see ahead icebergs bobbing in the sea from the Columbia Glacier, and they, these icebergs were visible on the radar. And in March, that was not an unusual event, and there was a practiced routine uh, to deal with it if the icebergs were in the outbound lane. Hazelwood contacted the Coast Guard, asked for permission to cross over to the inbound lane, make sure there was no oncoming traffic, go around the icebergs and steer back. Permission was received. And so he spoke to his mates and said, we've done this before. Can you handle this? I've got paperwork. I want to go below. Can you do this maneuver? You know what we're doing. And they said, uh, yes, we can handle this. And so he left the bridge of the ship, which was in violation of Exxon rules. But in the context of his mate's perception, not itself a radical act, they felt like they could handle it. And what happened in the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes um, to 30 minutes has really never been adequately explained. There's been a lot of testimony about it. But essentially, a group of people left alone on the bridge, including the first mate, became disoriented. They just lost track of where they were. And they uh, kept trying to correct but they were correcting the wrong errors and therefore accumulating them. And the next thing that happened was that there was this enormous ripping sound as the steel of the hull of the ship ran aground on Bly Reef, which was a very well-charted obstacle just to the other side of the inbound lanes. And as the shuddering uh, took place, this great gurgling sound of oil pouring into the water started to arise. And the smell of oil uh, started to spread around the ship. And one of the first mates ran down to the captain's uh, quarters and banged on the door and said, vessel aground, we are effed. But he said it more fully than I did. 
Hazelwood said later that he ran out of the room, up the stairs, went into the nearest uh, bathroom he could find, uh, threw up, and thought to himself that the world that he had known had just come to an end. And so had the world that uh, Exxon had been operating in that night. This was, uh, it's 9-11 if you think of it in nation-state terms. And uh, to the extent that many of you remember this accident and the way it played out in the years, couple of years after it occurred, you'll recall that first of all, the ecological damage was really quite vivid and unusual because of what was in Prince William Sound. All of these mammals living on the surface of the water, exposed to oil that spread very quickly, a couple of hundred thousand barrels plus. And when mammals come into contact with oil, especially surface mammals like sea otters, they'll preen themselves, ingest the oil, and, uh, and die. Um, 2,800 sea otters alone started to turn up um, as carcasses along the shore as the television cameras arrived. Uh, and there was enormous damage below the surface that was less easy to see. And of course, in our popular culture, the metaphor was drunk driving. But as the story we've just reviewed suggests, that was probably not the best way to think of what had happened. An enormously complex industrial system with operating in a risky environment by fallible human beings had undergone a series of errors, a chain of errors that led to a catastrophic accident. It's not even really plain that Hazelwood's drinking was relevant to the accident, other than the fact that he left the bridge, which perhaps a, a different man wouldn't have done in those circumstances, but that's speculative. The Natu National Transportation Safety Board investigated the accident and concluded that this was a failure of systems, of everybody's systems, of the government systems, of Exxon systems. In the 10 years before the Valdez, Exxon had reduced its workforce in just 10 years in the United States, from, well, globally, from 182,000 uh, to about 100,000, that is by 80,000 jobs in 10 years. Anyone who's worked in a large organization knows you cannot shrink yourself that fast without disorienting or changing uh, the integrity of the culture and the management systems within. Similarly, the Coast Guard had been shrinking and deregulating itself to the point where it didn't even have radar coverage of the parts of the Prince William Sound that the ship was going through. So the point is that that accident illuminated a fact of life in the modern oil industry, which is that all of these corporations, especially the largest ones, are continually operating um, extremely complex industrial systems in high-risk environments under regulatory oversight that um, is often inadequate. And that has been the case uh, for a lot of years, and it's part of the tension that has shaped um, ExxonMobil's place in the world um, for a long time. But this disaster um, did have a, an enormous impact uh, inside Exxon itself. The man rising to a power at the corporation was a guy named Lee Raymond, whose nickname uh, among some of his colleagues was Iron Ass for a reason. Uh, Exxon was a child of the Standard, Standard Oil breakup in 1911, ordered by the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Standard Oil, created by John D. Rockefeller, was an, an enormously um, powerful corporation that monopolized the early American oil industry 
and was shaped by Rockefeller's unyielding discipline and uh, evangelical uh, Christian beliefs. And of the children, the companies that were descended from that Standard Oil breakup, Exxon and its, uh, its progeny or its ancestors had always been the truest to the Rockefeller spirit, the Rockefeller ethos. So it had always been a relatively conservative and rule-oriented uh, and culturally conservative corporation in comparison to other American companies or even other standard offspring. But the Valdez brought to um, power a vision of Exxon's future that was extraordinarily um, focused on rules and systems and reform. And Raymond was the architect over time of most of those powerful reforms. He saw this crisis as a chance to do something he wanted to do anyway, which is to shake up the Exxon bureaucracy, which he felt was um, still too staid and unresponsive to change. And he used this crisis to remake every aspect of daily experience at the corporation. And his essential objective in the aftermath of the Valdez and all of the human fallibility, not just of the captains or of the men on the bridge, but of the oversight systems, of the failure to detect these patterns accumulating, his objective was to wring out as much human fallibility from Exxon's industrial systems as it was possible to do. And he was determined by force of will to see, to remake the corporation uh, in the aftermath of this crisis. Now, who was Lee Raymond? His father, he grew up in South Dakota. His father was a railroad engineer. Like virtually all of the men, and they're virtually all men at the top of ExxonMobil, he had come to the corporation out of graduate school, or in some cases, folks come out, out of undergraduate school and stayed for life. ExxonMobil's internal culture is much more like the Marine Corps than um, a normal corporation that you might find, in the sense that if you mapped the top 100 publicly traded corporations in the US and looked at the top 30 jobs at each of those corporations and asked where did these people come from, you'd find a fair number of people who came in from some other company, a competing company, laterally, fairly far along in their careers, or came from a, another industry, came in with some fresh insights about marketing or engineering or some reforming spirit. And at ExxonMobil, that's not the case. Folks come up together all in a cohort. If you are a successful IBM executive, that doesn't mean you can go over and wear two stars as a Marine Corps general. And that's pretty much the attitude at ExxonMobil about their own cohort. And there are a fair number of uh, military veterans and a sense of military discipline that has always been present. And Raymond, epitomized this kind of tough, uh, tough culture. Um, he had a doctoral degree in chemical engineering, and he was a, a numbers man who could hold quite a lot of Exxon's complex finance uh, numbers in his head. He never really had a proper chief financial officer because he could mostly do the math himself. Um, and he was a, a very direct, uh, even brutal man when he thought that his colleagues uh, weren't asking intelligent questions or um, weren't thinking through a problem in a serious way. Um, he, was, he could be charming and low-key in a small group, and he was uh, reasonably kind to lower-level employees, and he could be deeply sentimental about ExxonMobil and its employees, even weeping at retirement parties when others were unmoved. But uh, when uh, someone challenged him or asked a question at a public forum like this, whether it was a Wall Street analyst or a journalist or an executive at a meeting, um, he would cut their heads off uh, before they finished if he thought they were saying something stupid. To be called a stupid shit was pretty, pretty commonplace uh, at these meetings, and actually a relatively mild censure. Um, one of the managers I talked to said, 
he had presented an idea at a meeting to, to Raymond, and Raymond listened and then replied, and what little birdie flew in the window and whispered that dumb shit idea in your ear? <laughs> so he was a large man, uh, and his physical appearance did little to sort of soften the impression that he made. Uh, he, he wore these wireframe glasses, and he had kind of big ears, and he'd grown uh, in middle age and, and later into a sort of fleshy man, and he had large jowls beneath his chin that sort of had the appearance of a bullfrog's neck. And a childhood uh, cleft palate had left him with a hair lip. And that became the object of much amateur psychological speculation among those victims of his personal abuse, thinking that he perhaps had, uh, from childhood, overcompensated um, in his, his bantering skills. He saw himself very much, as many of his generation did, as an oil and gas purist. He once told a colleague, we ought to emblazon in the granite outside our headquarters the words crude oil. And when he remade Exxon after the Valdez accident over the next 15 years, it was that vision of, pure, of a pure commitment to the oil and gas industry, unapologetic, unabashed, that shaped his uh, vision as much as the systems reform. But he wanted to make sure that on his watch anyway, nothing like this Valdez uh, accident could happen again. And, and the way he did it was to turn um, ExxonMobil's workplace into the most uh, rule-bound, automated, um, perhaps idiot-proof uh, workplace that any large industrial corporation has, has attempted in recent times. And uh, he did this in a variety of ways. Um, First, to emphasize the primacy of worker safety performance over all else, uh, and to hold everyone at every level of the corporation accountable for it. So some of the responses to this reform almost looked like Soviet collectives. You had worker groups that would get together on a regular basis and talk about not only accidents that it might have occurred, but near misses, and not only near misses that occurred in the workplace, but near misses that had occurred at home. So people would confess that they had gone on vacation and gotten too much sun and were in danger of missing half a day as they recovered from their sunburn. Or people would talk about operating a lawnmower improperly, having a rock come out and strike them in the leg. If you left a file drawer open in the office, you would get a written reprimand because someone might bump into it. If there were a rash of paper cuts around the copier, this would be investigated and a written report would be written. The, the idea was that if you didn't think about all of the ways in which uh, you could prevent human error at every moment of your life, away from the office or in the office, then you were never going to get toward whatever approximate uh, relationship to zero defects it might be possible to engineer. Some of the managers I talked to who participated in this said that, well, at every work day, at every meeting where a group gathered, and I should have done this actually starting our time together, I would have taken a safety minute to talk to you about where the evacuation routes are or some other feature of the, of the setting that we were in. And sometimes you had to do this even if you were the same group of six people who worked in the same office and met five days a week. Each time some, it rotated and somebody had to present a safety minute, and some of the folks I talked to said that actually the only real source of anxiety they had in their whole working lives at ExxonMobil was trying to think of something fresh to say <laughs> as they were driving to the office knowing that it was their day for the safety minute. <laughs> And the numbers changed, the numbers moved, and the record that Exxon established during the 
course of this reform started to uh, impress and, and even pressure some of its peers, and other corporations uh, started to adopt these best practices. And uh, one uh, scientist I interviewed at ExxonMobil recalled when a friend uh, who worked at Chevron uh, called to say that Chevron had just introduced the safety minute. And she said, we have now been absorbed into the Exxon Borg. That was the way uh, it felt. Now, what was the world that this increasingly uh, conservative, disciplined, and internally focused and, and insular corporation had to struggle against in the years after this transformational accident? The narrative in the book covers a lot of ground, literally and, and metaphorically. ExxonMobil's operations are in Indonesia, in Aceh, in Nigeria, in Equatorial Guinea, in Chad, in Russia, in Venezuela. Its political strategy uh, is carried out in every influential capital in the world, including uh, in Washington, where um, over the 12 years after the merger, approximately um, ExxonMobil spent $169 million on disclosed lobbying activity. Um, and so it's a, it's a a story of global reach and, and global challenges. And I can't, with the time we have together, um, take you on a proper tour, but I want to strike uh, three or four of the themes of what this world uh, looked like as this new reformed nation emerged from the trauma of, of Exxon Valdez and, and what, what, it's, what the story was really about looking out at the world from, from ExxonMobil's perspective, because it has implications for us. Uh, first of all, thinking about ExxonMobil as a global sovereign, as a multinational that has its own independent foreign policy, its own economic policy, its own security policy, you could say that about other multinationals, to be sure. Walmart, Google, Microsoft. And one of the things that was uh, striking about ExxonMobil was to discover, when I started to look at them and I thought, this looks like a country to me. And then I, I came to do more research, research and, and I was somewhat surprised to discover, well, actually, yeah, that's how they see themselves. <laughs> that wasn't a revelation to them. That is actually the way they operate. And uh, there's a self-consciousness about that. But ExxonMobil's business model is different from an information company or a retailer in one important way. Their business model essentially is to go out and drill holes in the ground all over the world and to sit on top of them for 40 years at a time, up to 40 years at a time, to extract value. Now, that puts you in terra firma. That means that you are grounded in the politics of the nation states where you work. And it creates a whole uh, set of incentives toward stability in the terra firma where you are located. And yet, the very act of producing oil and gas in poor countries will incent competition because whoever owns the presidential palace in a dictatorship owns the oil and therefore owns the Swiss bank account. So there's, in every respect, a tension between this conservative attempt to wring risk, to wring human fallibility, to wring the human factor out of the equation of these industrial daily operations of enormous scale, and the fact that the business model after Valdez increasingly drove ExxonMobil into riskier and riskier environments. What do I mean by that? First, it has to do with access to oil and gas in the first place. You know, for a long time, Exxon and its, co and its peer companies never really thought much about how much oil and gas in the world they owned. They didn't probably bother even to count it up to the last barrel because they owned so much that it wasn't really a relevant question. And the reason they owned so much was that they had access to the state oil 
of Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, and other enormous, safe, seemingly stable pools of oil in the Middle East. And if you owned a piece of Aramco, the Saudi oil company, you owned the world's biggest pool of easily produced cheap oil. Well, resource nationalism, the rise of a post-colonial um, attitude, not only in the Middle East, but all over the post-colonial world, led to the expropriation of the interests of companies like ExxonMobil and all these big safe pools of oil. They basically got thrown out of the easy oil and they could no longer own it. They couldn't book it in their reserves. They couldn't declare it to Wall Street investors. Uh, and so they were forced to migrate out of these safe and large pools towards other pools of oil. Well, where could they go? Well, the easiest place, if you're focused on owning things, it's best to be in the free market West where property rights are sacrosanct. So in a perfect world, you'd just buy all the oil and gas you could in the United States or perhaps in Western Europe or Australia. But those were maturing, uh, if not fully mature, oil patches where there wasn't a lot of growth and a lot of upside, at least until recently with natural gas. So in the absence of being able to migrate to the free market West, ExxonMobil and its peers were forced to migrate to weak states, essentially states that were too weak to build their own nationalism, their own national oil company to do it themselves, states that had to have foreign capital in order to exploit the wealth under their soil. So through most of the 2000s, about a quarter of ExxonMobil's oil and gas liquids production annually took place in West Africa, in Nigeria, in Chad, in Equatorial Guinea, in Angola. And I'm, the first time I traveled to Chad for this book, you know, I, I kept thinking, why is Exxon here? I mean, this place is landlocked. 11 million people live there. It's a benighted country, 181st out of 187 countries in the Human Development Index of the United Nations. Life expectancy still under 50 years. And a very difficult environment in every respect. Well, so why are they here? Well, the answer is because they have no choice. In order to replace the amount of oil and gas that they pump out every year, four and a half million barrels a day of oil equivalent, oil and gas, times 365 days, you can do the math, it's about a billion and a half barrels on an annual basis. Now, where are you gonna go find a billion and a half barrels every year that you can book on your reserves and say, I'm replacing what I'm producing? And the answer is you have to go everywhere. And they end up in all of these weak states. And what is the nature of the risk in those places? It's geopolitical risk. It's violence. It's guerrilla wars. It's a coup maker grabbing the presidential palace and, ar and abrogating the contract. It's uh, guerrilla groups around the edges of their facilities looking to control these gas fields. When Exxon bought mobile in 2000 and transformed itself into the largest corporation in the world, they bought with mobile essentially a portfolio of small war wars around the world. One of them was in Aceh, Indonesia, where a separatist guerrilla movement was uh, engaged in a low-grade violent war against the Indonesian state. And the main price, prize was this gas field that Mobil owned. And I remember when I went out to Aceh to, to report on the torture and detention that Indonesian forces had carried out in defense of this gas field on behalf of Mobil and then ExxonMobil, <laughs> I remember thinking, uh, I'll bet the investment bankers didn't vet this war when they sold mobile to, <laughs> to Exxon. Exxon's, Exxon's properties were, were pretty you know, conservative in comparison to mobile's. And I think by the time Exxon really looked at the geopolitical risk portfolio they had bought, they might have been surprised here and there by what they had actually acquired. 
In any event, um, that's one great tension between this effort to reform in a conservative um, arc without precedent and then a business that's pushing you, despite your reforms, into a more and more uh, risk. You know, second aspect of it um, was the emergence of, of climate and global warming as a global issue, uh, which occurred, you know, over a period of time, culminating in the enactment of the Kyoto Accords. Now, pollution and the environmental damage caused by fossil fuels has been a feature of the challenges facing businesses that produce those fuels, you know, from the beginning. Um, air pollution, water pollution, uh, runoff from gasoline stations. But almost all of these um, pollution challenges had proved tractable from the company's perspective through the imposition of costs and the forging of regulatory bargains with governments. So they would be willing to pay a price to reduce air pollution, to change the blends of fuels, to be regulated, to clean up spills, to pay for uh, the provision of, of cleanup, to compensate victims of spills, and so forth. And over time, these costs were built into their business, but they were sustainable. This was an adaptable challenge. This was a challenge to which these corporations could and did adapt. Global warming had a slightly existential quality about it, because if the forecasts of extinction associated with warming were accurate, then societies might develop a view that they should heavily tax themselves in order to move away from fossil fuels much more rapidly than a normal economic transition would permit. Now, the Kyoto Accords, which were signed in 1997 as climate science was just starting to emerge as a basis for widespread uh, scientific consensus. Kyoto was um, opposed by American politicians on many grounds, fairness, economic uh, price, and in fact, the United States Senate, I think, in 1998 or 99, voted something like 97 to nothing um, to send a signal to Clinton, you might as well not even bother to bring this treaty over, there's nobody here who supports it. But it was very uh, unusual for corporations who uh, opposed Kyoto for these reasons to do what ExxonMobil did, which was to attack the science itself. Uh, that, I, in my judgment, was a fairly radical decision for the largest corporation in the United States, a corporation owned by the pension funds of school teachers and firefighters and state government workers and many, many uh, ordinary individuals, retirees around the country, to t take, take on a decision to go after the science and to do this by funding free market campaign groups and, and uh, um, some of them you know, self-invented for this purpose to, to essentially pollute the public atmosphere about the credibility of climate science as it was emerging. They did this uh, for 2005 years, and I think, I mean, for, for up until 2005. Um, and I think uh, their decision to do this is, is it can be explained by two factors, both of which are present. One is that Lee Raymond himself personally, as a chemical engineer, developed the conviction that he was qualified as a scientist, although he was not a climate scientist or a meteorologist, uh, to reach his own independent judgment that warming science was false. And he declared publicly in speeches in Beijing, urging the Chinese government to oppose the Kyoto Accords, uh, that not only did he not believe there was any evidence, credible evidence that industrial activity was creating, was contributing to global warming, contributing to the forcing mechanisms of global warming, 
but he actually didn't believe the world was getting warm at all, and that there was an equal danger of an ice age as to a, um, a warmer planet. So that was a, a peculiar um, conviction of, of an individual leader. But um, equally, um, it was the structural threat that a perception, widespread perception that warming could endanger um, global civilization that I think provided support for his decision-making uh, to fund these groups. Now, in 2005, um, when Raymond retired, the board of directors of ExxonMobil and, and I think many of their executives concluded that they had really put themselves in a box. A lot of this funding had been exposed by investigators for congressional uh, committees, for uh, scientific organizations, uh, Greenpeace and others, had brought a lot of documents forward. It is now clear what had happened. And uh, so the corporation decided to um, change their tone. And in selecting Raymond's successor, um, Rex Tillerson, they chose someone who could communicate, uh, they thought, more effectively around these issues. At, at the same time, their lawyers didn't want to create liability uh, of the sort that the tobacco industry faced by ever admitting that their funding of these uh, communications campaigns had um, been wrong. So essentially, their first position after Raymond's retirement was, we were never wrong, we were only misunderstood. And uh, that went on for a few years and didn't have a lot of traction. But in 2009, when uh, Congress, including with the support of a number of large uh, multinational corporations headquartered in the United States, as well as sections of the Republican Party, not just the Democratic Party, were preparing to move a cap-and-trade bill in 2009, um, ExxonMobil went on record um, for the first time supporting a price on carbon. They supported a carbon tax rather than the cap-and-trade bill, which they felt was an unwieldy mechanism in this setting. And they looked at the European Union's experience with some justification and said, you know, this is not the world's uh, most efficient marketplace. But the, I, I judge that as a significant moment because it's the first time America's largest oil corporation has conceded that the risks of global warming are severe enough to warrant uh, a price on carbon that would incent uh, change in the structure of our, of our energy economy. Now, the bill died because of the recession, and it may be some time before we find the politics to revive it. But if Australia can impose a price on carbon, I promise you the United States will get there eventually. <laughs> so let me just finish up with a couple of other uh, themes and, and, and come back to where we began, um, and then look forward to your questions. I came to think of ExxonMobil as our state oil company. You know, every industrialized democracy in the world has a state oil company. There's Total in France, there's Eni in Italy, there's a couple in China now, PetroChina, Petrobras in Brazil, BP, Shell. And in most cases, uh, those companies have a history of state ownership and a deep alliance with the state where they're headquartered. Often, in Total, they all went to school together, and when they're in Gabon, the country rep of Total says, to the ambassador, you know, what can you do for me? What can I do for you? Uh, Rex Tillerson, the current chief executive of ExxonMobil, told Scouting Magazine recently, he's, the, he's active in the Boy Scouts of America, that his favorite book is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Now, that's a dystopian novel that's become a touchstone for libertarians and for, and for many folks in the Tea Party. And I thought to myself, you know, only in America would the head of our state oil company have such an attitude toward the state that has given birth to his corporation. And meanwhile, by the way, he's sitting on an institution of such concentrated power 
that you would think Ayn Rand would be somewhat suspicious of it uh, itself. Um, but it's, I think it, it says a lot about us uh, and our kind of ambivalence about um, our own government that we would produce an institution of this power uh, that would be led by a culture informed by such ideas. But truthfully, ExxonMobil is our energy policy. They're what we have. They're far more uh, consistent, durable, effective, clear about what they intend, uh, and able to carry out their, their goals than the federal government has proved to be since Nixon first declared that uh, we would end uh, our dependency on oil. And Raymond's vision, those words on the granite, crude oil, you know, have, have endured uh, more than the declared policies of president after president. The one company that really irritated uh, ExxonMobil in the years, the last 20 years that I chronicled was BP. Because it, you remember BP rebranded itself just to the letters BP, not even any periods. I had to go through the book and take out all the periods because it was just a brand, just the letters BP, no word petroleum in it. And of course their logo was a sun, yellow sun with green trim around it, as if 98% or more of BP's revenue didn't come from oil and gas production. <laughs> and it was sort of the opposite of ExxonMobil's we are who we are kind of uh, attitude. And they were global competitors and in the era when Lord Brown ran uh, BP as a kind of Tony Blair-aligned new globalist uh, corporate citizen and kind of the new vision of what a corporate citizen in the world would be, and, and they built a solar power plant in Frederick, Maryland, about 30 miles from the United States Capitol. In lieu of buying television ads telling you that BP was making the world a better place, they took members of Congress on a tour of a solar plant that they never actually uh, were able to coax into profit-making. A BP executive I met along the reporting trail told me that it was well understood inside the corporation that they just made these $200 million investments in solar plants outside of Washington because it was a better way to spend the money than buying television ads that nobody believed. Um, and it was actually just a displacement of the marketing money. Um, which, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good insight, actually. Uh, and uh, so during this uh, time, executives for ExxonMobil in Britain would email photographs to Lee Raymond of like a BP gas station in England with a windmill on top of it. <laughs> and they would say, this is our competition, we must destroy them. And, and uh, I mean, in a playful spirit. And, uh, and Raymond would uh, say, look, let's not get upset. Let's just you know, stick to our, our uh, playbook. But I, you'll recall in April of 2010 that a um, Deepwater Horizon platform operating in high-risk environments in the Gulf um, had some trouble uh, and uh, blew up and dumped a lot of uh, oil into the Gulf of Mexico. And about six weeks before that accident in April 2010, John Brown, who had been the architect of this branding strategy and this remaking of BB, BP and, and the new logo, he published a memoir in Britain that I, that I tracked down. And it, it wasn't... Uh, published in the United States because six weeks later it didn't really seem like the kind of book you'd want to publish in the United States. <laughs> but it was one of those books that former chief executives write about how they had a vision and he understood that climate change was coming before any other oil executive did and he had a vision of corporate citizenship and cooperation and, and, and trust with state governments and so forth and, and sort of the Tony Blair of the oil industry. And, uh, and it had a, a little anecdote in it that struck me. 
He recalled that on March 23, 1989, when the Valdez wreck occurred, he happened to be in Alaska inspecting BP's operations. And someone came to him and said a terrible accident has occurred in the Prince William Sound. And he ordered up an airplane and he flew up over the sound. And he recalls, in very literary language, looking down at the sea and watching the dark oil spread in pools. And he thought to himself about the whales and about the seals and about the otters. And then he recalled what he thought, which was, quote, the industry was now measured by its weakest member, the one with the worst reputation. That oil company was now Exxon. Well, the world turns. And this risk environment and the tension between operations and risk uh, remains present with us in ways that we do not see, that's invisible to us most days of the week, because embedded in the structure of our, our energy economy and the private corporations that, um, that run it. Thank you for listening. Look forward to your questions. Good evening. My name is David Trilling, and I noticed that you, you mentioned um, when you started talking about global warming and, and the strategy that Raymond uh, pursued about the shareholders and that the actual owners are people who probably have different values. And I was curious, it's something I've never understood, which is so much of the money comes from those folks, yet the, uh, there seems to be a contrast from, from corporate America's perspective. Is that something that's ever been pursued? Uh, um, have any executives ever been held accountable by the unions or whatever to, to operate differently? Shareholder activists started to turn up at ExxonMobil's annual meetings and emphasize the global warming issue. Uh, and that was part of the reason why the board and the rest of the corporation gradually came under pressure to change their, their approach. The Rockefeller family, for instance, uh, split its, the descendants of John D. And a good section of them rallied to the, um, to the cause and, and started to um, generate publicity about ExxonMobil's policies. And I think that had an, an effect. I would say overall, you know, as I've gone out on this uh, uh, lecture circuit and and started to hear from folks in the audience about what's on their minds and so forth. One of the questions that really gotten my attention, because when you're reporting a book like this, you don't think very much about solutions. You're just trying to describe the way things are. Uh, you know, is what, what, is, what could be done uh, if you wanted to address this, whatever your perspective about it, what is our power as citizens of a democracy to do something about an institution of this type? We sort of know what to do about our government. Every so often we get to go down to the ballot box and throw the bums out, but what do we do? And I, I think one, one observation that's come to my mind is that, you know, the whole conversation, democratic conversation about corporate responsibility in this country really lags. Uh, in other societies. Uh, the, even, even the Asian version of it in some ways is richer and more mature because of the role corporations play in lifetime employment and the social contract, provision of a social contract. But in Europe, of course, there's a much richer discourse about what it is we expect our corporations to do beyond serving the narrow financial goals that their fiduciary uh, obligations require of them. And I think it's up to us, in short, to generate a different kind of conversation about what corporate re responsibility really means and how it connects to shareholder power. I'm curious whether your reporting uncovered anything particularly interesting about the lawsuit against Exxon arising out of the Valdez incident and its approach to defending the lawsuit and um, just generally. And then particularly curious if you have any in thoughts or insights from your reporting on this and your reporting generally about 
what it says about the punitive damages system and, mm. and how it, it, it may be broken. And I may not have these numbers correct, but as I recall, there was a, something like a $500 million compensatory damages award in that case, a $20 billion punitive damages award, and that, that was struck down, uh, reduced to $500 million, and $500 million, while a lot of money for most people and many corporations, for a company that has, I think you said, $450 billion in revenue in the last quarter or year, right. that's not really going to have any deterrent effect on their behavior. Your rough sketch of what happened, the heavy punitive damages at trial, um, Exxon was willing to settle uh, actual damages, but Raymond decided fairly early on um, that he was determined to use ExxonMobil's resources to make new law about punitive damages for all corporations in the United States. And he appealed that case way past uh, where Exxon's own provincial interests could have yielded a settlement. Um, he wanted to make new law at the Supreme Court, and he did. Um, by the time they got up there, uh, this series of questions about how to um, manage punitive damages in the American court system had, had you know, spread even beyond where it was at the time of the Valdez. The only thing was that ExxonMobil, there's an episode where a sociologist at a university, I think he was at the University of Wisconsin, I could be mistaken, he received a phone call uh, from an Exxon executive who, who'd been reading some of his stuff and said, would you like to um, do some work about why punitive damages are you know, uneconomic or, or a bad thing? And uh, the sociologist decided that rather than actually do the work for compensation for Exxon, he would follow the trail of how it is Exxon tries to put academic articles like this on the record. And he wrote a, he, he kind of ran a one-man sting operation, basically. <laughs> Went down to, Ex took all these notes, and then wrote this huge article in a journal of sociology about how it worked, what their assumptions were, where they wanted the academic journals to be placed. And the reason they wanted them was basically as footnotes for clerks um, who would really think about what academic discourse was about punitive damage. They wanted to influence their, their kind of reading list, basically. And when they made new law on punitive damages, Souter, David Souter, the Supreme Court Justice, uh, put a footnote in referencing some of the studies Exxon had submitted and said, we note that these studies were paid for by Exxon, therefore we, we declined to rely on them. But then they went ahead and made the law that Exxon had been pursuing all along. And that, that kind of, that, I thought that encapsulated their record, basically, as a corporation. They're very, very aggressive. They play hardball like nobody plays it. They often get exposed, and you and I might think of, it, of their activity as embarrassing. But then they end up with the result, more or less, that they set out to get and seem impervious um, uh, at the same time. You raised a really interesting uh, tension or dichotomy between uh, the, the need for a company to engage in this risky world and find new sources of uh, petroleum in and, and risky places against a, a culture of, uh, which is conservative and anti-error. And how, how does it work out in terms of um, comparing, let's say, Exxon to other of the, the big oil companies? Do they engage in riskier decisions or their, their decisions to invest in... Uh, you know, country X. Do they do they, um, do they do they manage to take those bolder decisions, or do they are are they um, more more um, conservative? Structurally, there's another frontier of risk that these companies, including ExxonMobil, are drawn to that I didn't mention, which is geological risk. Because in order to create a case for yourself in a world of resource nationalism, you have to be able to say to governments. 
we can do what nobody else can do. Your companies can't do this. Your Chinese companies can't do this. And that means going out into riskier drilling environments, deep water, the Arctic. So it's not just geopolitical risk, it's also geological risk. And in that respect, I mean, Exxon, the way I came to think of that question is that in a world of sovereign multinational corporations that are basically self-managing, self-regulating, and then constrained by public opinion, bet the company, potential disasters, and some government regulation, at any moment, different corporations will have different standards of achievement and performance. Now, when Exxon got uh, into this reform period, their best practices did spread around the industry. They probably lifted all boats a little bit by basically establishing a record that was visible in the numbers that other corporations really couldn't ignore, and they started to, you know, best practice spread around. ExxonMobil wasn't the only source of them, but, but they spread around, and so presumably, as in aviation, basically, over the course of 60 years, all airlines figured out how to live in a system where planes crash less often. However, you know, at any one time, in a system like that, it's quite possible for one company to be an outlier or to be not accountable in the same way. And BP was such a company in the years leading up to the, to the Deepwater Horizon. It hadn't been before, but then it became that. Exxon had been such a company in the run-up to the Valdez, you could argue, and then it changed. Now, BP, if you had called up people in the oil industry on the morning of the Deepwater Horizon accident and said, the following thing has happened, who do you think was the operator? A plurality would have said BP. Its reputation was that well established. I mean, it was a company that partnered with others, and it, its record in Texas City, where that uh, refinery or chemical plant blew up and killed workers, their OSHA violation record was appalling. And yet, nobody had intervened, because um, there isn't really a way uh, to make this information transparent and a, and a source of public accountability. That's the nature of the system. You sort of mentioned in passing about the fact that Australia recently passed a carbon tax. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, Australia is really sort of an interesting place because on one hand, they're on the front lines of climate change for a variety of reasons. But on the other hand, they're deeply reliant on natural resources, in particular coal. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the carbon tax over there, um, number one. And the other aspect of it is what do you think the possibilities are that we might pass a carbon tax here? You've said it uh, as well as I, I could about Australia in particular. But what's interesting about the politics, I think, not living in Australia, but I do you know, follow that a little bit, um, is that something changed in public perception of the dangers of warming when the drought uh, settled in in Australia over the last few years. And, and that has implications for the United States. American politics, infused with libertarian suspicion of government as it is, has proved that the United States people are willing to tax themselves, are willing to impose short-term costs on themselves and on their economy in order to protect living generations from demonstrated dangers of pollution. So if your child is going to acquire um, asthma or lung cancer because of air pollution, you are going to act to take whatever steps are necessary to impose costs on the economy to eliminate that pollution. If your drinking water is at risk, you're going to go to the town hall and insist on, on remedial measures. The problem with warming has been that the risk is not to this living generation. Um, it's to the next or the one after that. And What's starting to change is the perception that actually the risk is with us now. 
And uh, you know, Hansen, Jim, James Hansen had a, a column in the Times this morning saying, the best way to think of the current risks of uh, climate change, he thinks it's credible to argue that deaths in Europe due to the heat wave the last couple of summers, 200, 300 deaths are global warming deaths. All right, well, he's going to get an argument about that, but at least the discourse is starting to shift. And it shifted in Australia because the drought was so unusual, so persistent, and the, and the country is so vulnerable because it has no topsoil, basically, uh, that, that basically the collective perceptions, even with the centrality of the coal industry was, Okay, we don't know everything. Climate is an uncertain, complex system. But we're so vulnerable because we're basically a desert island. If we get this wrong, we may never recover, so we better act now. And at some stage, I think, in the United States, living generations looking at their living children will say, we need to act now. Um, and they might have even started in 2009 if we hadn't had the worst recession since uh, the 1930s. I wonder, can you shed some light on uh, how all the vast oil in Russia sort of fell under the control of the so-called oligarchs who uh, run it now? So basically, they bought it uh, at a fire sale during the Yeltsin years, um, and it uh, was part of a kind of looting of state, Soviet state assets in the dark years um, that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union and after Yeltsin succeeded Gorbachev. There's a great, um, I'll just very briefly tell one story from the book that I, um, one of my favorites involving this demonstration of how ExxonMobil sees itself as a sovereign. One of the oligarchs that bought up um, Russia's oil was a guy named Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who's now in prison as well known as a, as a Russian political prisoner. But he, he formed the largest, what was in 2003, the largest oil company in Russia called Yukos, rolled up a few properties into something called Yukos. And then uh, he became politically ambitious, and part of his strategy was to sell a piece of Yukos to a Western company, maybe to hedge his geopolitical bets a little bit. And he went into negotiations with Lee Raymond, and Raymond said, Raymond was very, very interested, because it's very hard to buy into big pools of oil in nationalistic environments like Russia. And, uh, but Raymond said, look, I'm not going to participate if I can't have 51% control. We don't, we're not minority partners. That's not how we play. And uh, he said, furthermore, if I'm going to buy 51%, I need to know from Putin himself that he's comfortable with my having 51%. And uh, Khodorkovsky said, well, I don't know that I really want you talking to Putin. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Raymond sort of thought, well, you're just, trying to, you're just trying to negotiate with me here. You're trying to keep me at, you know, you're trying to control my negotiation, so I'm going to see Putin. So he arranged a meeting with him at the New York Stock Exchange uh, in September 2003, and they met one-on-one. -on -one, and Raymond said to him, uh, look, if I'm going to buy uh, into Yukos, I need a pathway to 51%. If your government wants to have a minority share in the company, that's okay. You can do that however you want. You want to trade it on the stock exchange, that's fine. You want to own it yourself, that's fine. But I need 51%. And uh, Putin said, well, if you had 51%, would that mean that if I wanted to do anything at Yukos that I would have to come and talk to you? <laughs> and Raymond said, yeah, but that's not so bad. It's like that in a lot of places in the world. <laughs> Putin said, I'll reserve judgment. Six weeks later, he arrested Khodorkovsky. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying cause and effect, but there was a, there was a context there. Uh, and, um, I just had a question about the um, ExxonMobil in particular. I was wondering, do you think that the um, Japanese company uh, actually buying out of their, their um, sponsorship? or is, is, I guess if that's what you can call it, do you think that's a step into the right direction of them um, maybe giving back to the um, environment? I don't know very much about that transaction. I mean, one of the things they do every year is they offload properties that are not meeting their financial return uh, goals. And 
and they just recently sold this gas field, or announced, I think, that they were selling this gas field in Aceh uh, that had been the subject of all of this um, uh, violence and contention. Um, you know, it goes to this, the, I'll just finish with this last reflection about our conversation before about corporate responsibility. ExxonMobil is a U.S. headquartered company. Doesn't really see itself tethered to the American national system. There's a scene in the book where Raymond is uh, in a meeting with some colleagues, and one of them says, "You know, you should build a refinery in the United States because we don't quite have enough resilience for gasoline manufacturing. If there were big disruptions in the world, we could use an extra refinery." And he said, "Well, I'm not a U.S. company. I don't make decisions on the basis of the interests of the United States. I make decisions on the basis of the interests of my shareholders." And the person in the meeting was sort of stunned and said, well, okay, I get it, but that's a little blunt. <laughs> um, you are, you know, the beneficiary of American capitalism law and values, which you take out into the world with you. But these, these corporations are um, uh, independent. I came to think of ExxonMobil as a little like France in relation to the United States. So, you know, in terms of the way they saw their interests around the world in any one country at any one time, they're more likely to be aligned than not, but not... Uh, not all the time, and quite often in opposition, but most of the time just trying to run their own thing, you know, stay out of each other's way. And uh, that kind of sovereignty demands citizen consciousness, it seems to me, if it's going to be uh, guided into some kind of durable and sustainable and fair um, balance. And we talked about the aspect of it in the United States, which often involves environmental issues, but the most disproportionate presence that Exxon has, ExxonMobil has as a power, as an independent power in the world, is in these really poor countries. In Chad, for example, they went in to develop that oil with the blessing of the World Bank, which provided a kind of cover, a narrative of experimentation and social development under which Chad agreed to direct all of its oil revenues into a special bank account and then to have them only dispersed uh, for health, economic, uh, social development, and education. And after about six years, the, let's call him politely, the authoritarian leader of Chad, uh, Idris Deby, uh, decided that he'd had enough of this, but he wanted to buy weapons. And uh, he basically started moving around and, and breaking his promises. And that year, ExxonMobil, basically these cables that I acquired through a Freedom of Information Act and uh, other sources basically show that Exxon said, you know, we're about to make a big tax payment to you, and you can use that money to buy your way out of this World Bank bargain, and then we can just go on, you know, like a normal sovereign. You are a sovereign country. You can do whatever you want. Well, that year, Debbie uh, blew off the World Bank, which happened to be run by Paul Wolfowitz, uh, the former Deputy Defense Secretary, basically defied him and got himself out of this bargain and went his own way. All right, now in that year, if you're in Ed Idris Deby's palace and you're looking across the capital of N'Djamena at two offices, one is the United States Embassy and the other is ExxonMobil. <laughs> the United States Embassy, all in in this poor country, uh, health aid, um, development aid, agricultural aid, counterterrorism aid, because there's notional Al-Qaeda running around in the desert, no more than $10 million a year. ExxonMobil transferred to the government of Chad that year alone more than $750 million a year. So who are you going to call? I mean, what does the United States, you know, what does the United States mean in Chad in that setting? All right, thank you very, very much.